0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 7 and then Luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 28. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the sea. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning to everyone. Uh, It's good to see you this morning. We're doing a short series on the Ten Commandments over this few weeks here not going one by one more of a big picture glance at these 10 words in light of the whole Bible and what it says about God's law. So really, this is a series about the law and the place of the law in the life of of a person who believes. And what we normally say about these 10 commandments are that all of God's moral rules are contained in these 10. So historically, God's people have seen an incredible amount of detail in each of these commandments. Here's a list, for example, of the duties required in the first commandment: "Have no other gods before me." In the Westminster Larger Catechism, for example, all of these. In other words, in other words, the catechism is saying all of this is encompassed in this in this command: fearing God, loving and desiring God, believing, trusting, hoping, delighting and rejoicing in Him, being zealous for Him, obedience, sorrow for sin, walking humbly with Him. All of those things, and then the sins forbidden. Uh, in that commandment as well. Just listen to this list. Atheism, idolatry, forgetfulness, unworthy, thoughts of him, bold and curious, searching into his secrets, self-love, self-seeking, inordinate or immoderate affection for anything but him, hard hearts, pride, presumption, false security, tempting God, lukewarmness, making men the Lord of our conscience, grieving the Holy Spirit, ingratitude, impatience, accusations against him. Anybody tired? It is scary and and what the what the what the catechism is saying is all of that is in these words all of that is in each of one of these things so the breadth of the commands is massive it's overwhelming Uh, so one of the things the people of faith have been doing since these commandments were given to the to them here on sinai is summarizing them and in luke chapter 10 that's exactly what you find jesus asked a lawyer for his summary of the whole law And there you see, if you look at it again with me in verse 27, the man says, well, the whole thing in all of that detail, even the whole thing can be summed up like this. Love God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you got it. That's right. He gave him the thumbs up. Now, the lawyer didn't make that up. He borrowed it from Moses in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Uh, where Moses says the same thing in summarizing really the whole entire law that God had given. And so all of God's laws are in these 10 words, and they can all be summarized like this, love God and love others. Two tablets of stone that Moses came down off the mountain to bring to the people. And so today we want to talk about what it looks like and what it means to love God uh, first and above all things, the first and greatest commandment, to love him. Next week we're going to talk about what it means to love people, love others, but today, love God. And I'll I'll be honest, when I did this, you know, when I originally did this, it felt like a good idea to do this summary, but today I'm really worried and regretful that how in the world do we get to all this material, these first three commandments about what it means to love God in one sermon, but we're going to do the best we can, okay? So here's the question. Uh, Here's the question for us. What is the most important thing in your life? What gets your best? and what gets the leftovers? What is it easy for you to get excited about? What what calendar event uh, is it easy for you to cancel versus what is the thing that you, you show up at and you go to no matter what? Or if you wanna say it this way, what's first? I like putting the question that way, best I think, because whatever's first in your life kinda has a double meaning. Whatever's first is what you give yourself to above all things as a matter of priority, but also what you give yourself to before all things just as a matter of you know practicality in your life what gets your very best what gets what's the first thing and then everything else falls in line behind it is god above and is he before everything else we ask that because we're finite creatures we have we only have so much time and energy and money and so we have to make choices and the question is what choice do you make what is the most important thing now i ask the question because According to Deuteronomy 6 and the lawyer's summary here in Luke chapter 10, the only way to love God is with everything. With all of your soul, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind. In case you were wondering, that's everything. That's the that's that way of saying with everything, with every breath, with every decision, every day, in all of life, in every area. See, religion is not a hobby. You cannot compartmentalize your faith. Uh, the God of the Bible is deserving of everything. He's worthy of our all in everything. And so the only way to love him is to love him with everything. Now, what we wanna ask of the, these two texts is a couple, three things about that. To love God with everything, then we wanna ask, well, why, why should we? And there's really good answers. There's a reason why you should obey God at this point and love him with everything. But then we wanna ask the practicalities of what you have to do and and don't do in order to love him with everything. And then lastly, because this is where we ultimately wanna end is, how can you? Where does the power to obey this command come from? How can you love God with everything, okay? So loving God with everything, why you should and what you do and don't do in order to do that. And lastly, how you can. So let's walk through this together first. Why you should love God with everything. And I wanna pick up the phrase to love him with all of your heart the lawyer says there, because it's important. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus made the point that the commandments reach the heart. They forbid not only the outward acts of sin, but also the desire and inclination behind the act on the, in the internal things. And so do not murder, as it's given to us in the Ten Commandments, goes far beyond the command to simply not murder. It also includes hatred and bigotry and indifference, or adultery is more than just a physical act. There is adultery of the heart sinful sexual inclinations that have to be mortified. The problem is that moralism focuses on externals while neglecting the internal interior life. So the most rigorous law obeying people like Pharisees and some of us ironically, the the reality is, is we don't take the law seriously enough because what matters in Christianity is the heart. The right behavior with the wrong motivation is still wrong. If my children obey my voice with gritted teeth, I'm grateful for their obedience. But my heart longs for their heart. You know what I'm saying? You awake? Hello? Everybody out there? I'm, I'm I'm not in the matrix, right? I'm not alone. Okay, just checking. I know we're ready to get to lunch. Hang in there with me. What matters is the heart. And so the apostle Paul said, if you do a bunch of religious stuff, but you're not, but you're motivated by selfishness and greed and not love, it doesn't count. That's First Corinthians thirteen. Jesus warns of worshiping God in a, in a setting like this with your lips while your heart remains far from Him. He says that kind of worship is meaningless; it's vanity. It doesn't count for anything. God wants your heart because the heart is the motivational core of a person's life. In the Bible, the heart feels and reasons and thinks and plans. So when the Bible talks about The heart, it's referring to the command center of your life. Or Proverbs 4.23 says this, the wellspring of life. It's a source. It's an important verse in Proverbs, I think. It tells us to guard our hearts because the heart gushes more than just emotion. The heart gushes life. I did a search of all the different translations of that verse. Listen to what they say about the heart, Just, just from a few places. One translation says, everything you do flows from the heart. It's the source of life, one translation puts. The message, Eugene Peterson says, the heart is where life starts. Life is shaped by your heart, or the New Century version, your heart runs your life. So it's the command center of life. Now, this forces us, on the one hand, to really take responsibility for our lives. My life has not been made by other people's choices for me or their sins against me. Whatever my life is today, it came from my heart. It is the projection in the desire of the d- desires and drives of my heart and yours, too. It really is true. We have to take responsibility. The heart, our, our life comes from our heart. So the relationships and the things that we're doing and the consequences even at times of, of, you know, the desires of our hearts are the things that we're having to live with on a day-to-day basis. But it also means that if you need change, it's, it is as Augustine said, St. Augustine said the key to life change is not the acts of the will, but the loves of the heart. And so the problem is hardly ever an effort problem. Sometimes it is, but very rarely. Typically, the problem is a worship problem. There's some love, some desire that is driving your life that shouldn't be. And so the question that we have to ask this morning is, well, what has your heart? Because something does. And that's what you've got to know. There's some good. There's some beauty. There's some truth. And it has your heart. And it becomes an ultimate allegiance in your life. A Lord, a God. And I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Notice that it doesn't say at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord, take it or leave it. What does it say? God says, "I, I am the Lord, so worship me and have no other gods before me. But notice there that to not worship is not an option. The issue is what you worship. We can't not worship. Our hearts are always in search of an object of worship. So the key is to worship the right thing because if you don't, you will never find life. You'll never be free as Noah talked about. And isn't that what the lawyer said to Jesus? And then Jesus replies, he says, do this and you will live. And it's true because like all of all other created things, we've been made to work in a certain way. And listen, graduates, parents, Teenagers, everybody in the room, if I could leave you with one thing today, there's only one way for your life to work the way it's supposed to, for you to have the joy and purpose and freedom that you've been made to live with. There's only one way, and that is to make God the great love of your life and give Him everything. Give Him your whole heart. Because if you don't, you'll give your heart to something else far less worthy than him and it'll devour you he's the master you need because no other master says look serve me i have died for you every other master says serve me die for me and all the other gods devour those who worship them so if you give your heart to something else it'll cause all kinds of trouble that's the first thing you should give you should give god everything you should love him with everything because only He is worthy. But secondly, well, then what do you do and what do you not do in order to love him with everything? And this is the first table of the law. So look uh, in more detail with me at at, uh, the Exodus 20 passage. You'll see these first three commands are listed there. Number one, have no other gods before the Lord. Number two, no graven images. Number three, not taking the Lord's name in vain. Now, what I want to do is take each in turn. Very briefly, looking at the do not first, because that's the way that they're stated, and then the corresponding do, which is implied in each of those. So the nuts and bolts of these commands. And here we're talking about loving God with all of your soul and with all of your strength from Luke ten twenty seven. And these words there in Luke describe action. They describe loving God with your life or with energetic purpose, not just in your heart, but in the practical day-to-day ordering of your life as you go about As you go about it, with your soul and with your strength, you're to love him as well. And it means a number of things. We could list probably a thousand, but this morning there's three. But remember within these three, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of applications. So look at the first command there in verse three. The Lord says, very first, you shall have no other gods before me. Now let me, for the sake of time, get right to the point and say that the essence of sin is idolatry. All sin has an element of idolatry in it. So some good thing has become a god thing in your life. An idol is just that—it's a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing in your heart, which then begins to compete with the Lord for your loyalty. Now we heard that we hear that word idol, and we think of statues of Hindu gods with heads of elef, you know elephant heads and all of these things. But almost anything can become an idol, and most of the time, surprisingly, it's some good thing that becomes an ultimate thing, like a friendship or a child or a job, we say like this, this is how you know. You'll say something like this, if I have this, if I have this thing, as long as I have this thing, I'm okay. As long as I have this, it's going to all be okay. Or you'll say, if I don't have this, if this gets taken away from me, if if I'm forced to live without this, whatever it is, then life is not worth living. And if that thing is anything other than the Lord, it's an idol. So today's Mother's Day. This is a great Mother's Day sermon, by the way, isn't it? Right? Isn't it? Moms, don't you, I know, I know. I, you know, it is right and fitting that your children love you with all of their heart and soul and strength and mind as well, but ultimately, ultimately isn't the goal of your work in their life for them to be children who love him with all of their heart and soul, and strength and mind. And kids, that should be your goal as well. But so, okay, Mother's Day, let's talk about parenting for just a minute. And in parenting, the reality is, as God is ultimate, your kids are a good gift from him. That's the way that's got to be. It's the way it's supposed to work. Parenting, child-parent relationship doesn't work otherwise. What if you make your kids into an ultimate thing in your life? If you love your kids more than you love God, what, what we're told in the scriptures is that it will wreck you and it will wreck them because it will create disordered love and your motivational core will then all be messed up. And from that poisoned well, all kinds of poisonous things will flow because the heart is a wellspring of life. And if your heart is operating with disordered loves, then everything that comes out of your heart is disordered as well. So we have to say, it is possible. And moms, please, on Mother's Day, know this. It's possible to love your kids too much. It's possible to live for them and not for the Lord. And if you do, it'll make you too permissive on the one hand and you won't discipline them as you're supposed to or potentially too um, controlling and you'll be angry when they screw up or anxious when things don't fall the way you want them to for them, which, by the way, as a parent of four kids now, they hardly ever do. Right? And so you just all this anxiety and parenting all the time. And it's telling on you, that anxiety is telling on you that their happiness, that their success, that, that your, you know, your love for them has become far too important. But not just with parenting, okay? You can do this with almost anything, work. Work can be easily become a rival uh, God in your heart. It can give you a sense of self. The paycheck that you, that you earn can become your security. And so if you love work too much... It will make you driven which typically means busyness and a lack of margin and a collective spiritual things and again the dominoes begin to fall because you're living in this maybe just in this this work part of your life you're living from this disordered place of you know all of your loves are all messed up and out of that everything that comes out of that gets messed up too and so almost anything in your life can become a rival to god in your heart now that's the do not don't allow good things to become God things. But what's the do here? Because there is a corresponding do. And the do of the first commandment is worship. Turn it around. God says, you shall have me as God. Me and only me as God. Believe in me. Trust in me. Rely on me. Love me. Make my love for you the source of your life and nothing else. So what we're told here is that the Lord himself should have our exclusive love and loyalty. And that's the word I would leave you thinking about with this first commandment the word loyalty it's about loyalty where is your ultimate loyalty if you want an answer to that question do a quick check on your time talents and treasures what gets the best of you and what gets the leftovers in your checkbook on your calendar and whatever the case might be what what priorities get shelved when something better comes up and what is the thing that you never miss You shall have no other gods before me exclusive love and loyalty secondly the second thing we have to do is what we're told here in this this second command where in verse five where he says you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness and not and you shall not bow down to them or serve them so uh this is this is the second commandment and there's an irony here moses was up on the mountain receiving these words from the lord and the israelites if you remember at the very moment god is saying this to moses the israelites are down at the bottom of the mountain what are they doing they're creating a golden calf and they're bowing down and worshiping it. And so the Lord is saying, that's wrong, you shouldn't do that. But what does it mean? What's, what's that commandment mean? Because this one can be a little bit hard and difficult to, to understand. And the answer, I think, that we, ha- is, that we have to ask is what's behind the impulse to want to make a physical representation of God who is invisible and spiritual? And I think, again, I, just for the sake of time, getting right to the point, there is a desire in us to take hold of God and domesticate him and control him and to make him comprehendable so that we can understand everything that he's doing and he doesn't feel quite so above and beyond us. But the truth is the Lord is invisible, he's infinite. That is, he is beyond us in all of our categories. His thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways and so forth. And when you take something that is infinite and you begin to try to explain it or worse, represent it according to your knowing, you inevitably reduce it. And so the scholars say things like, images conceal more than they reveal, and that's the problem. I mean, it can be scary for God to be so big. So there's this huge temptation to try to control him by shaping him into an image, which often means shaping him into our own image, into our own likeness, so that he becomes a perfect representation of ourselves, so that we serve a God who likes all the things that we like and hates all the people that we hate and is just on our team, always in everything. Now, if you want an example, and this is touchy, I, I, I'm, I want to be careful with this, okay? But if you want an example of how pervasive I think this is in our hearts, all you have to do is look at the beautiful stained glass windows that are in our sanctuary. Okay, they, they contain images of Jesus, which in some circles in our denomination is problematic. Uh, but what I want you to see is, is when white people... Draw pictures of Jesus or make films about Jesus, have you noticed he's almost always white? And he speaks English all the time. And it's a problem. It's a problem because it shows what happens to us when we when we try to do this. We 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 inevitably, we inevitably show up on the page or in the statue, or in the representation that we make of God. And, that, and that's the problem. No graven images means be careful about trying to familiarize God, familiarizing God. He's not like you. And listen, you have to bend yourself to the reality of him, not the other way around. That's the way this works. Now, what's the do here? Because there's a do here as well, and the do here is joyful reverence. So what we're called to positively is this joyful reverence of the Lord. Think of the Israelites here on the mountain, the smoke and the thunder and the lightning and and the voice and so forth. The ground is shaking, and so are they, and rightly so, because in the Bible, anyone who gets close to God begins to fall to pieces, and that's the way that it should be. Reverence means deep respect and awe and wonder. It's the realization that when we talk about God, we're dealing with something dangerous. Joyful because he's good always, but always, always reverent because... He's also great. And if your faith is in Jesus, you're safe with him, but he is not safe. And so the note of our lives should be this this reverence of the Lord. So exclusive love and loyalty and joyful reverence. But there's one more thing. And the third one is the third command we see in in verse seven. I told you this is a lot. Um, It's really a lot. I'm questioning my tactic here, but we say we we see here the third command that comes as you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And here we want to talk about obedience, because this is not about using God's name as a curse word, okay? That's not what this means, although that's probably a good idea. Don't do that either. But, 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 uh, but um, here's what we mean by this. What, what does it mean to put your name on something? I mean, when a child gets a new toy, especially in a house like ours where there are a number of other kids that might want to play with it, and we gave up at some point, and I think and just realized if, you know, if we're going to get a really cool toy, we might as well just get the same thing for everybody, so that you know we don't have to deal with all of that and so on on christmas morning when you do that of course the kids take it and what's the first thing they do they find a marker and they put their name on it because they're saying this is mine this belongs to me not you this is mine and what we're told in the bible is that god has put his name on us but we're also told that we have to take his name we take his name which means we we uh we take the obligation to carry his name and reputation as being made in his image. And I, and I want to be careful not to not to place a heavy burden on anybody this morning, but I want to say to you what what we what we learn here in this third commandment is is that God's honor and glory is at stake in you and me. The only way some people will ever know him is because of what they see in you and me. And it's Mother's Day, moms, I don't want to I don't want to burden you with this heavy burden, but I, I you, we have to feel the weight as parents that so much of how we learn to relate to God has to do with what our parents were like, because children learn what God is like through how their parents image Him to them. And that's a huge responsibility, and so to take the Lord's name in vain means that you take it in unreality. You you claim to worship Him and serve Him but then you fail to live as such, you, you fail to live uh, uniquely obedient to his commands. And so the do here is very simple and it's just unquestioned obedience. Now I don't probably need to say anything more here. We are meant to be obedient to the Lord. Jesus said this, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And this, this book that we have is full of the things that he commands of us. And we are meant to meet every command with a yes, Lord. Uh, whatever, it's what they said here in Exodus 20 when he's done, down at the end of the chapter giving all these commands, they say, yes, Lord whatever you say, we will do and so we see exclusive loyalty and worship and joyful reverence and unquestioned obedience, that's what you have to do and not do to love God with everything, everything else God says in his law can be summed up in those three commands, so, are you ready? ready team break, let's go you got it? oh man no way it's a lot isn't it it's overwhelming isn't it if it feels that way that's exactly the way it's meant to feel and so we want to end by asking this question well then how can you love god with everything and the answer is that you have to be inspired by his love for you first paul in second corinthians 5 talks about we read this just this past week about the love of Jesus compelling or controlling us to no longer live for ourselves but for him. I mean, Don't forget the preamble. Look there again, verse 2 of these commandments. Why is that preamble there? Before the Lord gives them any instructions, he reminds them of what he's done to save them. And it's there because God's saying, I go first. I always go first. Everything you do for me is in response to what I've done for you. And as John says, we love because he first loved us. So, Steve Brown, my old seminary professor, liked to say it this way, and, it, and it's something you really ought to maybe write down somewhere, but he, you know, and, and remember, he would say, The only people who get better are the people who know that if they don't, God will love them anyway. That is to say, the power to love God with everything is really grace and not law. Grace, and grace means that, verse 2. In Exodus 20 comes at the beginning of the Ten Commandments and not at the end. And that's significant. Don't miss that. God declares his love and his loyalty and his commitment to them as people, as his people before he gives them the law, not after, to say, it is my love and not your obedience, not your performance. That's the basis of this relationship. And that's what it means to love him with all of your mind. See, that's the last thing the, the lawyer says. You got to love him with your mind. You got to think rightly about the law and how it works in light of all that God has done in Jesus. You got to do the theology of the law we've been talking about for the last few weeks here. And we said that the law has to kill you. And by that, we mean that the law was never meant to give righteousness. God always meant for it to take away righteousness. Excuse me, so the lawyer who put Jesus to the test said this, Teacher, this is uh, Luke 10.25, What must I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what was his assumption? You see it there. His assumption was that eternal life came through doing. Well, if that's the case, what standard of doing? Well, he got it right. Love God with all of your heart. Soul and strength and mind and and love other people more than you love yourself. And Jesus said, he said there, and this is challenging. Think about this. Jesus said, yeah, you're right. If you can do that, then you will find eternal life. But the problem is, is, is not that Jesus makes that statement at the end. It's the assumption that the man begins with. He began with the wrong assumption and so do we. He thought eternal life was a matter of doing But eternal life is not a matter of doing. Eternal life is a matter of believing because if by the lawyer's own admission, the standard of doing that merits heaven is to love God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my strength and all of my mind, well, can I just be honest with all of you today? I'll never do that. I don't feel so bad saying that because none of you will either. No one ever has. And that's what this man should have thought. See. When he heard Jesus say, yes, do this and live, he should have thought, well, oh gosh, what have I gotten myself into? In that case, in that case, I don't know that I'm enough. I probably need to look beyond myself and beyond my doing. My doing's not good enough. And that was his fatal mistake and ours too. You see, God gave the law to drive us away from our doing towards believing because as the Galatians three passage we read earlier in the service says, It says all who rely on works of the law, in other words, all who rely on their doing are under a curse. Why? Because no one is justified before God by the law. Instead, Paul says there in Galatians 3, that the righteous will live by faith and that statement's in quotations because it is an axiom in the Bible that pops up in lots of places in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That righteousness with God comes by believing, not doing. And therefore, see, here's the problem with the law. He goes on, verse 12, the law is not of faith, because the law is all about doing. And then comes the phrase in Galatians three twelve that the one who does shall live by their doing. The one who does shall live by their doing. In other words, if you insist on trying to gain eternal life through doing, then the law will be the standard by which your doing will be evaluated and you will be condemned by your doing. That's the curse, that no amount of doing is enough. And what's worse is it never feels like enough. And so you're constantly doing more and doing more and doing more and doing more. That's the curse. And instead, Paul goes on in Galatians three to say, the law was meant for a very different purpose to drive us to Jesus. That is to take away this impulse to rely upon our doing and to force us instead to look outside of ourselves and rely upon God's grace to die to the law, to die to the project of law doing because then and only then can we truly live for God. You see, obedience is the goal. But you will never love God with everything until you know you can't on your own. (laughs) And then as a result, look outside of yourself for help. But as soon as you do that, listen, as soon as you do that, once your law-relying self is dead into the grave, then a different power can come in, grace. But grace doesn't come and say, it doesn't matter if you obey, let's just put that aside, It's, it's all gonna be okay. No, grace comes and says, here's the power to love God with everything. Not perfectly, of course, because that's no longer the point, right? But sincerely, and increasingly. And that's enough because we're under grace now. So back to my original question, then, how can you love God with everything? I have a confession. It's a trick question. Because you can't, you don't, you never will. But there is one who has, only one. And he's the one standing right in front of this lawyer in Luke 10, Jesus Christ himself. The Bible says that though he was God, he emptied himself of all self and became nothing and wrapped himself in human flesh and blood and became a servant, obedient to God all the way to the cross. We read it at the very beginning of his ministry out in the wilderness, much like Israel was in the wilderness here. He squared off with the devil, having his loyalty to his father tested and tried, and he passed the test. And then at the very end of his life, in a garden, the way sin entered the world in a garden, at the beginning, the Garden of Eden, facing his own death, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And every second in between the end and the beginning, every second, He loved God with everything. Listen to his words. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Even in death, he loved the Father with everything. Listen again to John 12, 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See, Galatians 3 says that Jesus has redeemed all of those who have turned from their law-relying ways from the curse of the law through his obedient life and death, becoming a curse for us, so that being raised from the dead and seated in heaven at the place of power, at the right hand of God, having all power and authority, he might send to us the Spirit, so that the Spirit might be in us, so that we might love God with everything too and in doing so that we might find life that is truly life that's our gospel isn't it great news let's try that again isn't it great news aren't you aren't you so glad for that it's exactly what we need we need spiritual power to untangle our hearts from the idols and loves that overpromise and underdeliver every time we need new hearts to love God with everything and so the question See, listen, the question, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or if you're here and you're young teenagers, listen, the question is not, what must I do? You can't obey the law by doing. You obey the law by believing. You can't love God with everything by doing. So the question is, what must I believe to inherit eternal life? That's the question. And here's the answer. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen? Let's pray. So, Father, in this last moment together, on this special day that we have, we pray just that, that you would step into our lives because we know that faith and repentance are gifts. In other words, they're things that come from you. They don't come from us. And so would you come, and would you give us the gift of faith? For some of us, maybe for the first time, if there's someone here and they don't know you, Uh, Would you give them faith that they might reach out to you away from their doing into believing and that they would come to know your love? What a beautiful thing that would be. But for many of us, we've believed for a long time now, but we came into this room this morning weary of doing and needing to believe even deeper. And so would you invite us into that in these last moments as we sing this song? you are the one who is worthy of our hearts because only you of all of the gods the world has ever known. Every other God says, come, serve me. You must die for me. But the truth is, uh, Father, you're the only one. You're the only God who came and who said, look, serve me because I've died for you. So great is your love. And so you are truly, you're truly worthy of everything we could give to you. And so we confess our half-hearted, lukewarm reactions to you, and we pray that you would stir our hearts in fresh ways this morning as we sing, but beyond this singing, into the way that we would go from this place to live our lives, that we would love you with everything, glorifying you as the, as the Lord Jesus did, that you might be glorified in the lives we live as we image you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Don't underestimate the uh, response of God's heart to those words being on your lips. So it's good we decided to just sit in that moment. We normally stand there in the service, but just to sit as an act of humility and reverence before the Lord. But um, his heart jumps, Uh, I know this because it's what the Bible says, his heart jumps to hear such things from us as his people. Uh, And so we can leap up into uh, the doing, there is doing, it's just the believing comes first. But having believed and having put our hearts to that truth, we can now leap up into the doing that he's given to us as he sends us out now. So if you'd stand uh, with me or if you want to leap, whatever you want to do. But, uh, and so with, with willing, ready hearts now, uh, we are sent with these words. Um, that the Father's smile rests upon our lives. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. We think mothers particularly. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Have a great day. Happy Mother's Day.